Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by... Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 117. In this episode, we're talking about alien bases on the moon. Government psychic Ingo Swan published a book called Penetration, The Question of Extraterrestrial and Human Telepathy. He described a series of remote viewing experiments he was hired to do by a secretive government organization. The experiments suggested an alien presence on the moon. Swan even thought he encountered the aliens here on Earth. This mystery will be a two-parter. In this episode, we'll tell the story that Ingo Swan related of the events that he said happened to him between 1975 and 1977. So, Jimmy, where do we go from here? Next episode, we will be the ones to go into analysis mode and look at how credible Ingo's story is. Was it just something he made up out of whole cloth, or is he telling events as he remembers them? If anything like this did happen, how accurately did Ingo interpret it? Axelrod often let Ingo keep his assumptions. So could something different have been going on compared to what Ingo thought? And how accurate were Ingo's remote viewing results? Are there actually aliens on the moon? You're listening to episode 118 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Ingo Swan's amazing story of remote viewing alien bases on the moon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1998, Government psychic Ingo Swan published a book called Penetration. It was about how he had been hired in 1975 to remote view and thus penetrate what was happening at certain sites on the moon. He perceived that there were alien bases at some of these sites. Later, he encountered a strange woman here on Earth who he thought might be an alien. Then he was taken to the far north where he had a UFO sighting. Was Ingo making all this up? Was he telling the truth as he remembered it? Did he interpret these events correctly? And could there really be aliens on the moon? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's pick up from where we left off. What theories are there about what Ingo Swan has to say in Penetration? From the faith perspective, there's not a lot that's new to say. We've already covered the faith questions related to the key phenomena that the book involves. For example, we devoted all of episode 55 to the subject of the religious implications there would be if intelligent alien life exists. 
In episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science, we discussed the faith questions related to the implications that would follow if natural psychic powers existed. And uh, we discussed remote viewing specifically in episodes 102 and 103, as well as a follow-up moral discussion of it just last episode in episode 116 on mysterious listener feedback. So we won't be rehashing all of the faith-related questions this time. If you want a discussion of the faith perspective on the issues involved in this episode, you can go back and listen to those episodes. All right, then what theories do we need to consider from the reason perspective? The big one is whether any of this happened at all. Was this all a hoax perpetrated by Ingo Swan, or did he truthfully report what he experienced as he remembered it 14 years later? If he was accurately reporting what he remembered, we need to consider how accurate his memories were and how well he understood and interpreted what was happening to him. That would involve questions like, did a secretive group hire him to remote view the moon? Did he really encounter the so-called twins and the woman he describes in the supermarket? And was she really an alien? How credible was the UFO sighting up north? And of course, the big one, how accurate were Ingo's remote viewing impressions of the moon? And could there really be alien bases there? So let's consider all those from the recent perspective then. How likely is it that this was all just a hoax Ingo perpetrated and nothing like this ever happened? The chief argument for that would be that it's a really wild story. And if that's your reaction and you conclude that Ingo made the whole thing up, I totally understand. That was my initial reaction when I read Penetration. And when I decided to cover it on Mysterious World, I thought it would just be a fun UFO story, even though I would end up concluding that there was no basis for it. But as I started investigating Swan in preparation for the remote viewing episodes, I started to reevaluate things. As someone working in psychic phenomena, Ingo had a history of making what people might consider far out claims, and many of them were supported by documentation. Uh, whatever you might think of the issue of whether psychic powers might exist, the documentation, including from the CIA, is there to show that Ingo really did participate in the experiments he reported, and he really did have the results that were reported, whether you think those results were due to psychic phenomena or something else. So he wouldn't have been a total hoaxer who simply lied about everything. That suggests that he had at least some concern for his reputation. Also, I realized that Ingo's interpretations of these events weren't necessarily what was really going on. The least believable part of the story for me was the alien woman in the supermarket. But as I thought about it, I realized that Ingo's interpretation of this event wasn't the only one, and there are other, more plausible ways to look at it. And if you set aside Ingo's idea that the supermarket woman was an alien... The other parts of his story fare better. So what we need to do is walk through the individual parts of his story, assess the likelihood that he was telling the truth about each individual element as he remembered it, and then come back to the question of whether it was all a lie or whether something like this might have actually happened. And that might not mean that he remembered it all correctly. 
Right. He was he was writing about this 14 years later when he was 65 years old without the benefit of much written documentation, and his memories easily could have been fuzzy. In fact, he says that they in his book that they were going fuzzy, and that's what led him to start writing them down in the early 1990s. So when it comes to details, they certainly would have been hazy. Even though people remember dramatic events in their lives better than non-dramatic ones, memories still fade. It's currently 2020, and 14 years ago would have been 2006. I might be able to remember the gist of dramatic events and conversations that occurred that long ago, but not all the details. We thus can't press the details of conversations that Ingo reconstructed from old memories, but we could entertain, okay, this is the general gist of what happened. So what about the first and most basic claim that a secretive group hired him to remote view the moon? That doesn't strike me as implausible at all. Ingo's strong impression was that this was some kind of secret group working for the U.S. government, and that would be suggested by the fact that he got a phone call from a highly placed government official in Washington telling him, who was a friend of his, telling him that Mr. Axelrod would contact him. It's not surprising that such a group would be based in the Washington, D.C. area. That's suggested by the fact that they wanted him to meet them in the Smithsonian Museum and that they then took him to a nearby underground facility after a pair of fairly short rides by automobile and helicopter. And there are lots of secret government agencies with facilities in the Washington, D.C. area. It's not surprising that he would be hired to do remote viewing for a government-connected group. The government manifestly was interested in hiring people to do remote viewing and willing to fly them places for this purpose. In fact, it was the government contractor SRI that had flown Ingo out to California repeatedly to work with Hal Putoff and Russell Targ. And many other groups hired Ingo to do remote viewing, too. If this was a particularly secretive group, they easily could have been prepared to offer him $1,000 a day honorarium as an incentive to do what they wanted, including keeping quiet about it for 10 years. And if they were particularly secretive, it's not surprising they would put Ingo through what he considered excessive security procedures. A regular criticism of the government and its agencies is that they are excessively preoccupied with secrecy. And I'm sure there are many people who work for such agencies that are paranoid and who put their contacts through excessive security procedures. Finally, it's not implausible that they would want him to remote view the moon. Government agencies were demonstrably investigating fringe phenomena like remote viewing and UFOs. There had already been projects devoted to extraterrestrial phenomena like the Air Force's Project Blue Book and the more recent ATIP program that we discussed in episodes 41 and 70. The early experiments Ingo did with Putoff and Targ led the CIA and the Defense Department to take an interest in remote viewing, and it's certainly possible that the Jupiter experiment they did could have attracted the attention of such a UFO-related study group, some kind of successor to Project Blue Book. So it's not implausible at all that in 1975 some secret government guy like Mr. Axelrod took it into his head to try using remote viewing techniques that the government was investigating and see what they might turn up about the extraterrestrial subjects that he was investigating. 
This would be even more the case if Mr. Axelrod heard rumors or speculation about alien bases on the moon. If aliens started coming to Earth, such bases would not be unreasonable, as we'll see later. Further, it's known that government agencies like the CIA have contacts in the publishing world. And so Mr. Axelrod could have been aware of George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon, which was what could have prompted his interest simply for defense purposes. If he heard early word that this book is going to be coming out, he might say, oh, let's take a look into this. The real question would be how he knew what coordinates to have Ingo view. But there had been rumors about particular location on the moon for years, as well as the fact we'd sent probes to the far side of the moon, and those could have generated the list of targets that he wanted Ingo to view. In any event, the idea of a secretive government group hiring him to remote view the moon in 1975 isn't at all implausible. What about the second basic claim in the story, the idea that in 1976, Ingo encountered the twins and an alien in a supermarket in Los Angeles? This was where I hit the greatest difficulty with the story as told. When I first encountered it, this was the deal killer for me. I found it extraordinarily unlikely that Ingo would encounter a human-looking alien in an L.A. supermarket, although there is that movie Alien from L.A. starring... Kathy Ireland. <laughs> and I still do think it's extraordinarily implausible. Of course, I can't say it's intrinsically impossible. If intelligent aliens exist, then they might be able to make it to Earth. And if they have the technology to make it to Earth, then they certainly would have the technology to either appear human or at least create human looking robots. And if they have such technology, then they could direct such a robot to a Los Angeles supermarket where Ingo would be. And if Mr. Axelrod and his associates had other ways of monitoring extraterrestrial activities, or even if they were just monitoring Ingo, then they might have been able to direct the twins there at the same time. However, I find this chain of coincidences extraordinarily unlikely. In particular, I find the alien in the supermarket hypothesis unlikely because if aliens had identified Ingo as a human of interest, they would have had the tech to pursue the matter no matter what Axelrod and the human authorities wanted. And so we should have expected them to have further involvement with Ingo. They should have, you know, abducted him or something. And we don't have evidence of that happening. Though, one could always propose that they did abduct him, but then wiped his memories. After all, we have drugs today, like Versed, that block memory formation, and they could have dosed him with something like Versed while he was asleep, and then done anything they wanted with him. Still, I find it extraordinarily unlikely that Ingo's account of these events is true, but that doesn't mean that nothing like them happened. What else could it have been? Let's consider two possibilities. First, let's suppose there are foreign agents of terrestrial origin in the United States. And that's something we know to be true. We have spies here. Let's suppose that some of these spies were interested in psychic phenomena in the 1970s. And we know that foreign governments like those of the USSR were most definitely interested in psychic phenomena in this period. So it's not unreasonable that a Soviet spy might seek to approach Ingo 
either to learn about our efforts or to flip him to their side. Such a spy might make an initial casual approach, even without mentioning the real ultimate psychic spying goal they had in mind. A casual approach might take place in a public location Ingo just happened to visit, like a supermarket. And they might even send a super sexy woman in hopes of seducing him and getting him to do what they want. And since our spies keep tabs on their spies, individuals like the twins might be there to stop such an encounter from happening. With their cover blown by the twins, the Soviet agents might then cancel their plans and not make the approach to Ingo, at least at that time, explaining why these so-called aliens never messed with Ingo later on. That doesn't mean that the Soviets never had contact with Ingo, though, because in 1973, Ingo and Hal Putoff had already traveled to a conference on psychic phenomena, or psychotronics, as the Soviets called it, that took place behind the Iron Curtain. It was in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, and there, uh, Putoff and Ingo talked with Soviet researchers about psychic stuff, and some of these were undoubtedly reporting to their intelligence agencies, just like our researchers were reporting to our intelligence agencies. So the Soviets may have gotten the contact with Ingo they wanted or enough of what they wanted in some other way, explaining why they had the supermarket woman, whose cover had been blown by the twins, back off and leave him alone. If the supermarket woman was a Soviet agent and the twins were tailing either her or Ingo, why would that lead him to think she was an alien? There are several possibilities. First. Just suppose for a minute that psychic abilities are real. If Ingo had psychic abilities, he may have sensed the presence of the twins and realized he was in a situation that had something to do with the remote viewing he did on the moon. He also might have sensed that the woman had something to do with this situation he's in because, you know, the twins are interested in her if she's a foreign agent. And he subconsciously cross-connected the idea of extraterrestrial remote viewing with the woman and had the thought flash in his mind that she might be an extraterrestrial. Second, maybe without psychic powers, he got a purely ordinary glimpse of the twins before he realized it, and that subconsciously brought him to remember the remote viewing of the moon that he had done. He might then have non-psychically but subconsciously picked up on their interests in the sexy Soviet agent, and that's what suggested the thought to him. So he's got this subconscious perception. The twins are interested in the woman. The twins are connected to the moon. Maybe the woman's connected to the moon. Third, maybe it was just a chance thought that flitted across his mind with no particular basis or Maybe he was psychically, precognitively remote viewing the movie Alien from L.A. with <laughs> Kathy Ireland, which came out some years later. In any event, and by the way, that Alien from L.A. is not an, ex not an extraterrestrial alien, but Kathy Ireland is a girl from L.A. who goes to a subterranean world, and she's the alien Ugh. from the top side. That sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, yeah, Mystery Science Theater 3000 did an episode of that, although my brother tells me he actually saw it in the theaters. <laughs> in any event, as Ingo himself acknowledged in the book, his random thought that she was an alien didn't prove anything. And he says he ordinarily would have just dismissed 
the thought and said, oh, no, nah, that's not true. It was when he got a good look at the twins and realized that they were there that it caused him to take the thought that she was an alien more seriously. But, you know, maybe the woman wasn't an alien at all and was a purely human spy. But then how would that fit with what Mr. Axelrod told him about the woman? Once he got back to New York, Axelrod grilled him over the phone about what his motive was for why was he in the supermarket looking at the woman. And it took some effort for Ingo to convince him that he didn't have a motive, that it was just a chance encounter with a random stranger. And he stared at her because of how beautiful she was and how scantily clad she was. Axelrod even asked Ingo, you're sure there was no other reason? And... Axelrod asked why Ingo ran away so fast. When Ingo finally convinced him, he had the rather nonplussed response, okay, I'll buy it. All of that sounds more like an intelligence agent being concerned that Ingo might be having clandestine meetings with a seductive spy. It certainly sounds more like Axelrod was worried that Ingo was a security risk with respect to the Soviets, than that he was having clandestine meetings with an alien. How did the idea she was an alien come up in the conversation with Axelrod? When Ingo was trying to convince him that he didn't have a motive for looking at the woman besides how scantily clad she was, Axelrod said, you're sure there was no other reason? And Ingo said, absolutely. Then Axelrod said, what did you think of her? Since Ingo had just said that he thought she was really sexy, Axelrod is clearly fishing for whether he had any other impressions. Ingo said, I got the impression she wasn't, well, exactly like us. And Axelrod said, what was she like? This would be consistent with Axelrod wanting to know if Ingo thought she was a non-American and thus possibly a foreign spy. But in answering that question, Ingo said he thought she was an extraterrestrial. Axelrod said, what made you think of that? Which suggests that this wasn't the answer he had been expecting. So it was Ingo who brought up the idea she was an alien. Axelrod never suggested that. When Ingo said he had no idea what made him think this, Axelrod went on to ask, and ask very insistently, whether the woman ever noticed Ingo, something that seemed of great concern to him and which is consistent with the idea she might be a foreign spy trying to make an approach. He then warned Ingo that the woman was very dangerous, and he said if he ever saw her again and if she ever approached him to, quote, make every effort to put distance between you and her, but act natural, always do it naturally. This again, is consistent with the idea that she was a dangerous foreign spy rather than an alien. When you read the conversation, Axelrod never suggests that the woman was an alien. Ingo brought that up, and Axelrod simply didn't challenge this notion, just like when Ingo first proposed that the twins were literal twins. He only asked what Ingo thought, and when Ingo said he thought they were twins, Axelrod just said, well, then that's resolved, isn't it? Axelrod has a pattern of letting Ingo think whatever he thinks, even when he's wrong. And Ingo later realized the twins weren't actually twins and weren't even brothers. They were just superficially similar. So it's 
very easy to suppose that Axelrod was worried about a dangerous foreign spy, and he simply didn't challenge Ingo's harebrained idea that she was a dangerous extraterrestrial. In fact, the idea she was a dangerous extraterrestrial might motivate Ingo to stay away from her even more than thinking she was a foreign spy. So it could actually serve Axelrod's interest to let Ingo keep thinking that. You mentioned there was another possibility besides the woman being a Soviet spy. What was that? Given the smoke and mirrors that are common in the intelligence world, it's also possible she wasn't a foreign spy, but an American one. That she was part of Axelrod's group, and the whole thing was a psychological operation that the group was running on Ingo. For example, as a loyalty test to see what he would do if he encountered a woman like this. Could he be seduced into betraying his country? Only Ingo spotted the twins, panicked, and left the store before the operation ran its course, which is why Axelrod wanted to know why he left so quickly. Or maybe it was some other kind of test they were doing. Maybe they wanted Ingo to think he was encountering extraterrestrials to see what he would do, although that isn't at all suggested by the conversation with Axelrod. Maybe they were even just surveilling Ingo, and the woman had nothing to do with it. She was just a random shopper who happened to catch Ingo's attention, and they wove her into the narrative to keep Ingo from realizing they'd just been spying on him. In any event, while I find it extremely unlikely that the woman was an actual alien, I think there are other possible explanations of what happened, and so I can't rule out that something like this occurred. It's not intrinsically implausible that once you get involved with spies, you may unexpectedly stumble into situations involving spy games of some kind. What about the third basic claim of the story that Axelrod took Ingo up north where they had the encounter with the UFO? This one is quite dramatic, but it doesn't have the same problems, at least it doesn't have the same giggle factor as the I think I met an alien in a supermarket incident. It's not implausible that people working for the government would have encounters with craft of unknown origin, especially drones. And that's all Ingo thought this was. He had he thought he had the psychic impression it was just a drone. Even today, military personnel have encounters with craft of unknown origin. That's why we have the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, that we talked about in Episodes 41 and 70 to investigate these encounters. And sometimes the objects that get encountered give the impression of just being drones. For example, in 2015, fighters assigned to the USS Theodore Roosevelt had an encounter with UFOs off the Florida coast. And gun camera footage of it was later released as the so-called gimbal video. In the audio of that video, we hear the comm chatter between two Navy pilots who say, Dude, that is a fucking drone, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. In case you didn't hear the initial part of that clearly, the first pilot says, It is an effing drone, bro indicating his impression that the unknown craft they were encountering was just a drone. So we know that people working for the government do encounter vehicles that give them this impression and that there are agencies to investigate them. It thus isn't unreasonable to suppose that they might identify a location where such craft appear at regular intervals, such as to collect water supplies, 
and they may not know exactly when they will appear, but only that they're likely to appear in a certain window of time. You'll notice that Axelrod told Ingo that he might be away for as long as four days, though from Ingo's chronology, it looks like he was away for only one. So maybe they had an idea we're likely to see a craft in this window, but we don't know for sure or exactly when, and it happened to come early. If an investigative group like this had identified such a location, it's not implausible that they would want to take Ingo there to see what psychic impressions he could gain of the craft, especially after he was reporting greater accuracy results. Thus, when Ingo said he expected that he would soon be able to achieve 65% accuracy, they might want to take him there. I don't know why the ship would be blasting the terrain to eliminate local wildlife, as some in the party thought. However, maybe they weren't trying to eliminate wildlife, but to eliminate potential human witnesses. Or maybe they weren't trying to eliminate anybody and it was a side effect of the transport system. And they weren't trying to blast anybody. It's just how their drive worked. Or maybe they were doing some incomprehensible alien thing. So I can't really assess that element of the story if this was an alien craft. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe the craft was purely terrestrial. Maybe it was a Soviet craft testing U.S. airspace. Or maybe it was even a secret U.S. test craft that was from a branch of the military so compartmentalized that Axelrod's group didn't know about it and just thought it might be extraterrestrial. Ingo's perceptions of it, I mean, he was, physical perceptions, his, what he saw was clouded by fog. And so some of the more amazing things he reported, like the craft appearing to fade into sudden visibility, might have been caused by the fog. Also, he indicated it was a triangular craft that viewed a certain way, kind of looked like it had a diamond shape. And those two impressions, triangularity and diamond shape from a certain angle, sound like the silhouettes of early stealth aircraft that the the U.S. came up with. You view them one way, they look like a triangle. You view them another way, it looks kind of diamond shaped. And maybe the blasting in the woods was just target practice, something consistent with trying to test what a experimental stealth vehicle like this could do. So maybe Ingo accurately reported what he remembered of this event, but it had a purely natural explanation. Before we move on, are there any confirmatory pieces of evidence that you've uncovered for the idea that something like these events occurred? I would cite two things. The first is based on some details that Ingo mentions in the book. First, he says that he got the initial phone call from his friend in the government telling him that Axelrod would call during late February 1975. He then says that Axelrod made that call about four weeks later, which would mean in late March of 1975. That day, Ingo flew down to Washington, D.C., and the next morning they started the experiments. That would suggest that Axelrod had him view the moon in late March. To help him find the moon psychically, Axelrod told him that from their location in the Washington area, the moon was full, so its near side was fully lit up and the so-called dark side of the moon was literally dark at this point, though that isn't the case at other stages of the moon's monthly cycle. 
This suggests that the target coordinates were on the far side of the moon that is never turned towards the Earth because the moon is tidally locked. It also suggests at the approximate date of the experiment. The moon was at its fullest on March 27, 1975, so the experiment would have been within a day or so of that. This fits very well with the idea that their encounter took place in late March, because, of course, the 27th is in late March. Ingo also says that they started the experiment early the next morning, and to help him target the moon, Axelrod told Ingo that the moon was just setting in the west. I checked the times of moonset for the Washington, D.C. area for the dates of March 26th, 27th, and 28th in 1975, and the times that the moon set in the West were between 6.11 a.m. and 7.24 a.m. So that's a detail that confirms Ingo's claim that this experiment was done early the next morning. The full moon really was setting at that time in Washington, D.C., which is significant. People don't realize it, but the moon is out during the day as much as it is during the night. It is above the horizon for 12 hours every day. We just don't notice it because it's overwhelmed by sunlight, so it's not as visible. And because it's out in the day, half the time it doesn't set until after dark. For example, just two weeks earlier, on March 14th, 1975, the moon was out all day and didn't set until 9.07 p.m. in Washington. So it was setting at night then. Now, I kind of doubt that when Ingo wrote Penetration in 1998, 14 years after the events, that he would have checked when moonset was in Washington for the March full moon in 1975. And even if he had tried to check, that task would have been much harder in 1998 because the Internet was still so new and the kinds of astronomy websites we have now weren't around. Is there a reason to be cautious about all this? Yeah, because Ingo's book includes some sketches of what he saw on the moon that he made once he got back to New York. When I looked at these, one of them has a date at the top of the page. The date is hard to read, but it looks either like March 14th or March 19th, 1975. Hypothetically, that one could be a, really a two, just badly written. So hypothetically, it could be March 29th, which would fit the moonset times really well. But it doesn't look like the 29th. It looks like March 14th or March 19th, the latter of which, of course, would be better fit the late March time frame. But if either of those two dates is correct, it wouldn't fit the moonset time for the March full moon from Washington, D.C. Hypothetically, the date at the top of the page could be something Ingo added later after he'd forgotten precisely when it happened, but more plausibly, it would be something that he wrote soon after he got back to New York. There would still be other ways of explaining what he remembered Axelrod telling him, including the fuzziness of his own memories, but this would deprive us of what would otherwise be a really significant confirmation of his story. You know, I'd love to be able to say, ah, the moonset time is accurate, and he probably couldn't have checked that, but then we have this other 
piece of evidence pointing to no, it was a week or two earlier and the moon set wouldn't have been accurate. Ingo's memories were just fuzzy about what how Axelrod told him to target the moon. Yet, even so, we might not have lost all significance here because the fact I found this suggests that Ingo wasn't deliberately checking things. Otherwise, he would have noticed that there's a dis- potential discrepancy between what is on his paper and when the moon set was in the time frame he described. And if he didn't find the discrepancy, that suggests he wasn't really checking that kind of stuff and was just going by memory and was being honest rather, or at least it's some evidence of that, rather than him consciously constructing a story and trying to make all the pieces of data fit. And it suggests that Ingo was documenting his experience at least partially along the way by making these sketches once he got back. All right. Before we continue on with more of our analysis, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Sandra M., A.B., Daniel C., Tess W., and Philip G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest, you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And as we told you last week, we're trying to do our final push to get to the financial stability point for us. As of the most recent data that we have at the time of recording, we're within $500 a month of hitting that. We've made lots of progress, but we still need to get to that financial stability point, And we hope to do that by the end of September. If we do, we've got some really special Bible software that we're going to be able to give away to celebrate. The software has been donated by the Faith Life Corporation that makes the Verbum Catholic Bible software that I use basically every day. It's really good software. We have a number of different packages include to give away, including one that's worth $2,000. So once we hit the goal, hopefully at the end of September, we will do a random drawing from all of our patrons at that time. So everyone, whether you're an existing supporter or a new supporter, you'll have a shot at winning one of those Bible software packages. Dom, how many total packages do we have again? There are 16 total packages, which is great. Very generous. Yeah, that's that's quite a number of packages. So 16 shots at winning the different packages. I think the least expensive of them is worth like $300 and they go all the way up to $2,000. It's really good Bible software. It is good for your own personal Bible study. It's also configured for devotional reading and studying the readings of the day and uh, the liturgical readings and things like that. So please help us get to that break-even goal, either by becoming a new patron or by increasing your monthly pledge. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. Once again, that's sqpn.com slash give and help us achieve that financial stability goal. And we will then be celebrating by giving away some awesome Bible software. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by Dr. Jimmy Turner, your guide to practical leadership at drjimmyturner.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com 
and get a free all twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, let's continue on. You mentioned a second potentially confirming piece of evidence. What was that? Apparently, some years later, Ingo was hired to take a look at the moon again, but this time he didn't do it himself. He brought in two other remote viewers. One was Paul Smith, who was one of the military's Project Stargate viewers and who wrote the book Reading the Enemy's Mind, which we talked about in episodes 102 and 103. For my money, Paul Smith is one of the most credible and balanced remote viewers, and he discussed the work that he did for Ingo in an interview with Jeffrey Mishlove on the YouTube channel New Thinking Aloud. That gave genesis to a couple of projects that Ingo actually dragged me in on. After the program was shut down, I was and I had retired from the military, he asked me to remote view some sites for him. And it turned out they were lunar targets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I didn't know what they were. Again, I'm blind, right? Yeah. You know, So I get these coordinates and okay, and I work them and I come up with things that are really definitely consistent with the moon and further consistent with bizarre things going on on the moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking, okay, what is Ingo trying to do here? And I, I sent him the stuff off and ultimately he sent me a big piece of his final report. He was apparently doing it for someone else. And what struck me is that a number of the things that I reported were very similar to things Ingo had reported. So Smith's results were at least broadly consistent with Ingo's. And as we'll hear, there was also a third guy that they were also consistent with. But there are some cautions that we'll need to consider when it comes to making an overall assessment of Ingo's remote viewing results. Still, the fact that he was willing to involve others in a parallel experiment suggests that he had enough confidence in his own results that he voluntarily had them checked, apparently for a paying client, against what other remote viewers would see. So what does all this say about the basic plausibility of Ingo's story? As a narrative, Ingo's account has four basic parts. First, he did the remote viewing experiment on Jupiter. Second, this led a secretive government group to ask him to remote view the moon. Third, he had an encounter with the woman and the twins in the supermarket. And fourth, he was taken up north to get his psychic impressions of what seemed to be a regularly appearing unknown craft. The first of these is known to be true. We have the original records of the Jupiter experiment, a copy of which is available in the CIA's online reading room, which we'll have a link to. The second is not at all implausible. It is quite plausible that the Jupiter experiment could attract the attention of a government group that might ask Ingo to remote view the moon, just like his early experiments attracted the attention of the CIA and the Defense Department. The third incident could have happened. While I don't buy Ingo's impression that the woman in the supermarket was an alien, it could have been the case that she was a foreign spy or that this was some kind of mind game being run on Ingo or they were just spying on him and he happened to notice this woman and they wove her into the narrative. The fourth incident, the UFO encounter, is not intrinsically implausible. Other similar encounters have been reported. And, you know, it may not have been a craft of alien origin. It could have belonged to a foreign power or even another branch of the U.S. government that Axelrod's group didn't know about. And given the silhouette he describes of it, it even kind of sounds like early stealth craft. 
when you look at what Ingo wrote from these perspectives, it's actually a fairly modest story, at least compared to many UFO stories. Taken individually, the elements aren't nearly as far out as those that many, including some in the remote commu- remote viewing community, have made about extraterrestrials. I mean, they're talking to them and having conversations and learning all about how the galaxy works, and there's none of that in this. If you don't believe me, just read some of the things that have been written by some of the UFO contactees and also by people in the remote viewing community like Ed Dames or Courtney Brown. And their stories about aliens and such are way, way wilder. In fact, here are some comments by Paul Smith on how some remote viewers sensationalize things and bring disrepute on the field by making irresponsible claims about anomaly targets like UFOs and the Loch Ness Monster and things like that. One of the problems with remote viewing coming to the public is that everybody felt the pull of these ways to use remote viewing. And so we have all kinds of people remote viewing aliens and conspiracy theories and all of these kind of anomalies and things mm-hmm. and uh, and then declaring they found the truth about them. Yeah. But you can't do that with remote viewing if you don't have some kind of confirmation. Because fantasy is a significant element in remote viewing, particularly when you're doing fantastical things. And so the most you can say if you remote view um, uh, and, you know, an extraterrestrial base is that this is what you perceived, and this much of it may correspond with something somebody else has said or done. But this stuff over here you have no confirmation for, so it's just the jury's out. It may or may not be true. That's the most you can say. Mm-hmm. But you get people who are absolutely convinced that they are that's exactly right, and so they build these whole houses of cards, imaginary houses of cards, about what's going on in outer space with aliens mm-hmm. and galactic civilizations, all that stuff, based on really nothing that's concrete. Yeah. There's this kind of will to believe. Yeah. And the more sensational and exciting it is, the more inclined you are to believe it. And this is not new in human psychology. I mean, we see this in the Salem witch trials. You know, we see this in in all the superstitions throughout the ages. Now, and I suppose the real shame is I hear from viewers occasionally Mm -hmm. of this very program who are skeptically inclined and tend to Mm -hmm. think that this is what parapsychology is all about, is this kind of delusional thinking. Yeah. And it's sad because... It's it's like the baby in the bathwater thing, right? Mm-hmm. There is a small baby in this bathtub that's real. And there's all this dirty bathwater, and and so many scientists and others just want to get rid of the bathwater, and the baby happens to go out with it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and and that's unfortunate. I mean, that's the disservice I see some of these sensationalizers, and I'll I'll name Ed Dames and and Courtney Brown as one who I think uh, mm-hmm. over sensationalized the field. Mm-hmm. They write a much bigger check than they have funds in their account for right when they're talking about this, and uh, and and they get a lot of people excited, enthusiastic about it. Yeah, but if you really start to boil it down to what's really true, you find that there's not a lot there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the problem with that is it gives an image of remote viewing as being this kind of circus. And where there may be a legitimate interest in exploring this phenomena, these phenomena, uh, in a responsible way, that just gets totally submerged by everybody out there. It's kind of like the Wild West, just remote viewing any anomaly that comes along in any haphazard way, front-loaded or whatever, and, and thinking they found truth. Yeah. By contrast, Ingo's claims about his own remote viewing results were much more modest, and he repeatedly acknowledged that he didn't know if they were accurate or not. And 
Here's what Smith has to say about Ingo's credibility when it comes to the basic narrative of the events he relates in Penetration. This was a subject he discussed with scientist Hal Putoff, and both of them knew Ingo for years. I and Hal Putoff have talked about that off and on, and Hal's position is, yeah, I don't know if this happened or not. He didn't tell me about it at the time. Of course, in the book, Ingo says he was forbidden to do that. But Hal said, and I endorse this, he said, Ingo never told me anything that wasn't true. Yeah. And Ingo was very honest about things. Mm -hmm. Now, he might tell you things that he believed to be true that may or may not have been true. But if he was telling you about an experience or whatever, it was an experience he really had. And so so both Hal and I would say, well, why would he start now telling us things that aren't true? He has a good track record of of integrity, and and it would have been very out of character for him to have made something like this up. And and not only out of character, it would have damaged all of the other work he had been doing for, uh, at that point, many years. Yes. So while Smith doesn't claim Ingo's remote viewing results for the moon were true, he thinks, based on his knowledge of Ingo and his track record for telling the truth, that at least the basic events Ingo relates in the book likely happened, even if Ingo didn't interpret them all correctly. All right, let's go for the big question here. If a secretive government group did hire Ingo to remote view the moon, how accurate were his impressions likely to be? It depends on how much credibility you think remote viewing has. If you think humans don't have any ability like this, then the odds that Ingo's results would be correct are no greater than random chance. And the chance that a random guess about whether a given set of coordinates on the moon just happens to have an alien base there is going to be very low. After all, we've had probes orbiting the moon for decades, and if the backside of the moon were covered with alien bases you'd think we'd know about it. Thus, most locations won't have an alien base there if, and this is a big if, there are any alien bases there at all. So if remote viewing doesn't exist as a psychic power, do not expect Ingo's results to be remotely correct. However, if an ability like this exists, then we need to give more weight to the impressions he got. But still, not too much credence, because... Even if remote viewing exists, it has a lot of noise compared to the signal that the viewers are trying to pick up on. It is very easy for them to get impressions that are just false. And this was especially the case in 1975. This was before Ingo came up with the refined multi-stage process that he developed for the Stargate viewers to use. It was also before he achieved 65% accuracy rates for himself. And one of the first things that he told Mr. Axelrod was, My psychic gifts, as you must then know, are very undependable. I work only in experimental situations, and I hardly think anyone should risk anything really serious on them. So Ingo was upfront about that, and he confesses in the book that he doesn't know if his results on the moon were accurate or not. One of the reasons we have to be suspicious of them is that Ingo was front-loaded, meaning that he knew what the target was in advance. Mr. Axelrod told him these coordinates were on the moon. Paul Smith explains why that's a problem. 
Yeah, I have to say, I think he was front-loaded, which I'm a little uncomfortable with. All right, let's define yeah, that term. Front-loaded means you know what your target is to begin with. Mm -hmm. and, and that's generally a no-no in remote viewing. And the reason for that is partly because then, then whatever you believe about it yeah. ends up in your session, even sure. if what you believe is wrong. But it also makes it hard, harder to pick up on the session, on the on this subtle signal coming in, because it gets blanketed by your preconceived notions about what you know about the target. Yeah. To do quality remote viewing, you're supposed to know nothing at all about the target so that your advanced knowledge or preconceptions about it don't interfere with the impressions you get. But this was early enough that some of those protocols hadn't yet been developed, and Ingo was front-loaded on the fact he was viewing the moon, and that could have interfered with his impressions. What about Paul Smith and the results he got? Was he front-loaded? No, as Smith explains. I was not front-loaded. I was blind to this target. Yeah. And since he was handling this through the mail, there was no subtle cueing. There was no accidental drops of phrase or anything. All I got was a coordinate, and I worked the session, right? Yeah. And so an overlap between that and Ingo's was more compelling to me. Now, there was a so you guy, got some feedback at some yes. point. Well, most of my feedback had to do with seeing what the other viewers had done. There was one other guy, and our overlapped with his stuff, too. So the fact that Smith was not front-loaded and still came up with results similar to Ingo's and the other guys would give them more credibility. In principle, but there's another potential problem, which is known as telepathic overlay. I talked about this in episode 103 and how it could be a problem, especially when viewing anomaly targets. Suppose for a moment that psychic powers are real, and then think about what would happen if you were asked to view a target that didn't exist, like maybe an alien base on the moon. Well, if psychic powers are real, you might telepathically pick up on what your client believes or fears could be the case and simply repeat it back to him. Thus, Ingo might have picked up on Mr. Axelrod's fears about there being aliens on the moon. And years later, when Ingo hired Paul Smith and the other guy, they might have picked up on what Ingo thought about the moon. In that case, they were simply recycling Mr. Axelrod's fears of a possible alien invasion and feeding these thoughts back to Ingo without realizing it. Did Smith think that telepathic overlay was possible in this case? According to remote viewing theory, it's always possible. But here's what Smith had to say. Now, there could have been telepathic overlay, yeah. but by then I was pretty experienced. I mean, I've been remote viewing for closing in on 20 years at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I can't discount the possibility of telepathic overlay, but I can at least have some confidence that that may not have been an explanation. So he doesn't think this is what was happening, but he can't rule it out. Besides telepathic overlay, are there thought to be other problems with trying to remote view anomaly targets? Yes, and I talked about some of them in episode 103. Some of them were things that I had not seen in the literature, but they were potential problems that occurred to me. I was very pleased then when I continued reading, and I found Paul Smith making exactly the same points about problems viewing anomaly targets. So I thought it was cool that the same issues that occurred to me had occurred to others and that a viewer like Smith was giving the same cautions that I had been. That's one of the reasons I consider Smith to be one of the more credible and balanced remote viewers, especially compared to people like Ed Dames and Courtney Brown, who we'll talk about in future episodes, like our upcoming one on the history of Project Stargate. 
In fact, Smith isn't a big fan of remote viewing anomaly targets. I don't do anomaly stuff except occasionally, like when Ingo asked me, and I didn't know I was doing it right. I don't like to do that stuff partly because you don't get feedback. If you're going against anomaly and you have no feedback, you don't know anything about it, it's like dividing by zero. You can get anything. Yeah. You, get, you know, that's the whole problem with trying to divide a number by zero. Any number can come out of that. And so um, it, it's, a, it's a danger of starting to believe way too much and leading you astray from, you know, rational thinking about how to apply remote viewing in a, in a responsible, reasonable way. He's not saying that you can't use remote viewing to look at an anomaly target. But he is saying that there are special difficulties with doing so, and so you have to be extra cautious with the results. And that's a good assessment of Ingo's results. Even if you think remote viewing might be real, there are difficulties including front-loading, telepathic overlay, and the fact we're dealing with an early stage of the practice when it was less refined that would warrant taking Ingo's results with extra caution. What about the possibility that there is one or more alien bases on the moon? That will depend on a number of things, the first of which is whether intelligent alien life exists or not. If you think it doesn't exist, then obviously there isn't an alien base on the moon. But if you think intelligent aliens are likely to exist or that they do exist, then the idea of such a base becomes at least hypothetically possible. Supposing that such life exists, we need to face the question of how easy it is to get between the stars. If it's all but impossible to get from there to here, we would not expect there to be any alien presence in our solar system. But if, for advanced civilizations, the tech exists to get between the stars with relative ease, whether that's faster than light or slower than light, then they would be able to get here and establish one or more bases in the solar system. We would then need to ask how common such life is. If it's extremely rare, the odds of there being an advanced civilization close enough to find us and come here go down. But if it's more common, the odds of having alien visitors goes up. Suppose an advanced alien civilization has visited the solar system. How likely is a moon base in that case? It wouldn't be at all unreasonable, especially if they wanted to do more than just a quick flyby. If they wanted to have ongoing interaction with the human race, whether to study us or guide our development or do a slow covert invasion, they would want a place that they could use as a base. This would save them from constantly having to go back to their own solar system to get back to their native environment. They'd want to build an environment like their native one, closer to the scene of their activities on Earth. And the far side of the moon would be a really good place for that. It's close enough to Earth that they could easily get back and forth, whether that's to study humans or whatever, or whether it's simply to pick up supplies, like Ingo allegedly saw the drone doing, although there is water on the moon. And since the moon is tidally locked so that it doesn't turn with respect to the Earth, the far side of the moon is a good place for a base, since humans can't just look up and see what's going on there. Uh, We have to send probes to the far side of the moon, and we've only been doing that in recent decades, and we don't do it all that much. For example, in 2008, only two countries, Japan and China, had probes in orbit around the moon. 
Furthermore, given the advanced tech an alien civilization would have, it would be relatively easy for them to hide a few small bases there using lunar camouflage. And camouflage is a primitive form of stealth technology that even we humans have had for thousands of years. Thus, if we're being visited by aliens, the idea of alien bases on the far side of the moon wouldn't be unreasonable. But, of course, all that is theoretical. Do we have positive evidence for such a base? We certainly don't have proof, at least not as far as the public is aware. But there are hints that people have proposed. If you think that remote viewing might be real, Ingo's results would fall into the category of evidence that at least hints that aliens are up there on the moon. What about the fact that he thought he saw a bunch of male naked aliens on the moon? Does that diminish the credibility of his impressions? Maybe, but remember, there's supposed to be a lot of noise along with the remote viewing signal. These details that they were all male and nude could have been part of the noise that were among the many details that even Ingo himself would have acknowledged were likely generated by his own subconscious. For example, we've got lots of creatures here on Earth that have no sex at all. They're asexual. That's most common with microscopic life forms, but it also happens you have some species that are monosexual, like species of lizards that are all female and have only one sex. We also have life forms with both sexes, which is common with plants. They have both male and female parts, but we have no experience with humanoids that are sexless or monosexual or that have both sexes. So if Ingo's subconscious picked up on humanoid creatures like that, it could easily default into him perceiving them as just having one of the two human sexes. And it could be that it just happened to default to the impression of seeing males. It could even be due to the fact that males have historically been the dominant sex socially among humans. And languages like English have historically used he as the default pronoun for a person whose sex you don't know. So if Ingo saw aliens with a sex his subconscious couldn't assess, his subconscious might have just used he as the default perception of them. What about the fact that he didn't perceive them as wearing clothes? Actually, that's the norm here on Earth. Humans are the only species that wears clothes out of the billions of species on Earth. So from that perspective, you could argue that the odds are billions to one against the idea of alien species wearing clothes. Of course, there are reasons that humans wear clothes. One is our advanced toolmaking ability that lets us make them. Most animals here on Earth don't either don't have a toolmaking ability or it's much more primitive than the ones we do. Also, clothes perform functions for us, like helping us with temperature control for our bodies and bodily protection and social signaling. But even then, lots of humans, such as in tribal societies in hotter climates, wear few or no clothes. And it's easy to imagine how a technologically advanced race of aliens might not need or want to wear clothes because they can do things like temperature control, environmental protection, and social signaling in other ways. They might 
want to wear clothes when encountering us prudish humans, but there's no guarantee that they'd want to wear them when up in their own environment, like in one of their bases. If we look beyond Ingo's remote viewing results, do we have any positive evidences for an alien moon base? There are what are called lunar anomalies. These are things on the moon that don't make sense. Some are called transient lunar phenomena, which means things that happen on the moon and then disappear. This category includes things like unexplained lights on the moon. Others are things in photographs of the moon that look like structures of some kind, or at least that's the claim. There have been reports of such lunar anomalies for decades. These were the principal subject of the book that Mr. Axelrod sent Ingo in 1977, Somebody Else is on the Moon, by George H. Leonard. And Ingo discusses a bunch of these anomalies in the second part of his book. For me, once we get out of the narrative part of the book, I'm much less interested. Personally, I'm not at all impressed by fuzzy moon photos and the structures people claim to see in them. The human tendency toward what's called pareidolia is too strong to take fuzzy, faint patterns in images seriously. Our brains are wired to find patterns even in random noise, and that includes visual jumbles. I mean, after all, think about the evolutionary costs and benefits of thinking you see a pattern versus not thinking you see a pattern. If your brain identifies subconsciously a faint pattern in the jungle and tells you that's a tiger, you'll take action and you're more likely to survive. But if your brain sees the same confused visual data and says, nah, it's not a tiger, ignore it, you might get eaten. So we have an inbuilt drive to identify patterns from fuzzy data, even when nothing is really there. What about the reported lights on the moon? Those exist, and we have photographic evidence of them. Of course, they're on the near side of the moon rather than the far side so that we can see them, but they really do exist. The question is, what explains them? According to a standard account, some may be caused by what's called outgassing. This involves subterraneous pockets of gas on the moon being released and, for example, blowing dust up from dark craters into the light from the sun, making it look like a light has momentarily appeared on the moon. Outgassing can also cause clouds of dust, which create a temporary mist on a small part of the moon's surface. Or fluctuations in Earth's atmosphere may affect viewing conditions that cause it to look like there are changes happening on the moon, when really it's the Earth's atmosphere that's changing, for example, due to temperature fluctuations. Or maybe meteor strikes kick up dust that then gets caught in the light on the moon. Nevertheless, there are real lunar anomalies or transient lunar phenomena that are reported. And here's what Paul Smith has to say about the anomalies Ingo discussed in the second part of the book. In that half of the book, he's talking about the moon and the odd kind of anomalies that have been that are seen and observed on the moon. Yes. And when I first read it, I thought, oh, crud, this is National Enquirer stuff. You know, Ingo, you're embarrassing yourself, right? 
it turns out there are anomalies on the moon that NASA in, itself has documented, mm -hmm. like transient lights and mm -hmm. stuff, and they try and come up with a natural explanation for it. But there are things that have happened there they don't have a natural explanation for. It. They just assume they're ultimately going to find out what caused it. You know, And maybe that's true. I don't know. So whether you find the purely natural accounts of lunar anomalies credible or whether you're open to attributing some of them to alien activity is up to you. So, Jimmy, then what is your bottom line on Ingo Swan's viewing of remote alien bases on the moon? Before I give you my bottom line, let me give you Paul Smith's. Before, if you'd asked me before, I would have ruled out the possibility. I was, oh, that's ridiculous. That's yeah. something somebody from 2001, the Space Odyssey, got, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, not just based on Ingo's sessions, but some of the actual empirical data about these anomalies on the moon lead me to at least be willing to entertain the possibility there might be mm -hmm. a base there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to go swear on a stack of Bibles. Yeah, absolutely, there's a base there. I can't say that. No. But I can say that uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. In so, other words, if, as an intelligence officer, mm -hmm. you regard this not as confirmation, but as piece, a piece of data that might help you form a hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. And then we've got to find the data that confirms or, or rejects the hypothesis, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the mean step, right? Uh -huh. but we haven't got there yet. So what you have is an unconfirmed hypothesis. Yes. And, and With some data that seems to support it. When I first read Ingo's book, my reaction was, there's no way this is true. The alien in the supermarket is a deal breaker. As I thought about what the book was really claiming, I realized this may have simply been Ingo's interpretation. Axelrod didn't claim she was an alien at any point, and Ingo did not claim he had proof she was. It was just a thought he had. So could a government group have hired Ingo to remote view the moon? Yes, that's entirely possible. Could something have happened in a supermarket, perhaps involving a Soviet agent or a mind game that Ingo misinterpreted? Yes. Could Ingo have been taken to a spot where a craft of some kind regularly appeared that Axelrod was suspicious of, whether it was an extraterrestrial craft or a Soviet craft or even a U.S. stealth test vehicle Axelrod just didn't know about? Yes, that could happen. The individual elements in Ingo's story aren't beyond the realm of possibility. I don't know that they happened. Much less do I know that Ingo's remote viewing results of the moon were accurate, for there are multiple reasons to treat those with extra caution even if you think remote viewing might be real. But I can't rule out the core of the story, at least not in the way I initially thought I could. Okay. So, Jimmy, let's uh, talk about some of the further resources that listeners could, could check out if they want to learn more. First, we'll have a link again to Ingo Swan's book, Penetration, also Russell Targ and Hal Putoff's book, Mind Reach, describing their early remote viewing experiments in the 1970s, and George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon. We'll also have a link to Paul Smith's book, Reading the Enemy's Mind. And in anticipation of an update, we're going to have at the end of the episode, we're also going to have links to Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, about the Golden State Killer, and the audiobook Evil Has a Name, in which the Golden State Killer's identity is revealed. It's a little bit later than Michelle McNamara's book, which was an investigation that came out before the killer's identity was discovered. Back to our main subject for today, though, we'll have a link to the CIA's copy of the Jupiter Experiment in its online reading room. 
Swan's sketch of Jupiter from the experiment. We'll have a link to the Washington, D.C. full moon calculator and the Washington, D.C. moon set calculator, as well as the full interview between Paul Smith and Jerry Mishlove on YouTube and also a page on transient lunar phenomena. Excellent. So uh, let's move on to our mysterious feedback uh, from our episode on God and the Gods. Uh, Our first feedback comes from Gerardo on Facebook, who says, this is not a podcast episode. It is a whole course. I will use it for my notes and all. Thank you, Jimmy and Dom. Thank you so much, Gerardo. We really try to pack in a lot of information in these episodes and glad that you appreciated that. There's more to say on the subject of the Divine Council in the Old Testament, and we'll be talking about it more in future episodes. Adam Hovey writes on YouTube, I'm so glad you pointed out the similar etymology between those various words and the Arabic word Allah. It gets really annoying when Christians say that Muslims don't worship God, they worship Allah. Would they say that about Arabic-speaking Christians? It bothers me because I've had the privilege of worshiping with Belkite Christians, i.e. Byzantine Catholics from the Middle East. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Lots of Christians, and not just in the Middle East, but in other places like Christians in Indonesia or Malaysia, their word for God is also Allah. And so we don't want to engage, as St. Paul says, in fights about words. Just because another language uses a different word for God, that doesn't mean you can brand it as this is some totally different God. Christians may be using the exact same word in those lands. Uh, and then uh, before I read this next bit of feedback, I have to prepare myself because I've got to say it right. Uh, Aaron Wood on YouTube writes, Amenomenakanushi is a really fun word to say. I know, isn't it? Amenomenakanushi, <laughs> or the name for the Shinto creator deity, is is a really fun name to say. So is, if you're looking for other fun names to say, Aaron Wood on YouTube, try Amenherhepshef. <laughs> That's one of the sons. He was a prince in ancient Egypt, uh, one of the sons of Ramesses VI. And I just love saying Amenherhepshef and getting that fricative in there in the middle of it. That's that's also a lot of fun. It reminds me of that Bing Crosby Christmas song, Many Kalikimake is the way to say Merry Christmas in the Hawaiian way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because they only have like, they only have like 15 uh, phonemes in Hawaiian. Oh, interesting. Uh, all right. So you have to, that means they have fewer sounds in the Hawaiian language. Yeah. So you have to compress it down to fit the Merry Christmas down to fit those sounds and it becomes Melikalikimaka. <laughs> I should have known that you would know that. So Jerry's, Jeremy Smith writes on YouTube. So what does the name Elisha mean? So it's a combination. Now, this is a reference to we talked about how a lot of Hebrew names and even Egyptian names are theophoric, meaning they have the name of a god embedded in them. So like Elijah or Eliyahu in Hebrew means El. So El is God. The E makes it possessive. So my God, and then Yahoo is an abbreviation of Yahweh. So Eliyahu means my God is Yahweh. Here we're dealing with his successor, Elisha, and that's a combination of El once more. So that's God and Yasha. I need to make sure I activate my vocal cords before the final A sound. So Yasha, and that is the word for salvation. And Hebrew 
like Latin in some cases, often does not use the verb to be. It has what are called nominal sentences where you have the subject and the predicate, but you don't use, you don't put is or are between them. And so this is a nominal sentence. El Yasha means God is salvation. Uh, English kind of can do that sometimes too, right? God, my salvation is sort of like, if you treat that as a full sentence, yes, yeah. as opposed to a single descriptor of God. Right, right. Oh, okay. That's true. The the technical difference is my salvation needs to be a predicate in order for it to be a nominal sentence, mm. as meaning God is my salvation. Whereas if it's just a description of God, my salvation is in apposition. Right. So it's one noun phrase. Oh, gosh, grammar has never been my strong suit. <laughs> right. you're, you're forced to learn more of it when you study foreign languages, because in order to understand their grammar, you need to understand That's your own. That's right. That's right. And I've never been good at foreign languages. All right. Let's move on before I embarrass myself more uh, by going to our mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, talking about interesting things from space, some people have the idea that the coronavirus might be from space. Hmm. And actually, this is not, I mean, the idea of the, the coronavirus being from space is new, but the idea that viruses come from space is not new. There has actually been a lot of discussion about that and that it may be part of why we have pandemics. So we'll have an article on the idea that the coronavirus might be one of those viruses that maybe fell from space. Also, there's the question of how do we deal with the coronavirus here on Earth? One ethicist has proposed, let's put mind-controlling drugs in the water supply to make people more cooperative with the government when dealing with coronavirus. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, and this is an illustration of how ethicists frequently are real. Their real job is not to figure out what's right and wrong. It's to rationalize whatever you want. <laughs> Right. And I've, I have very little trust for what bioethicists say who are untethered from any kind of Christian framework. Their, their real job is rationalize whatever the mood of the moment is in their circles. And this link we'll have is actually very skeptical of this approach and points out, among other things, that it is highly unethical <laughs> to apply any treatment to a person without their knowledge and consent. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've learned that over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So in addition, now, earlier I mentioned Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and also the audiobook that Audible slash Amazon produced called Evil Has a Name. Both of those are about the Golden State Killer. And we have a, an update on the Golden State Killer. As we told you a few weeks ago, Joseph D'Angelo ha has now admitted to his crimes as part of a plea deal to avoid the death penalty and a lengthy trial. And given his age and various other factors, the victim's families agreed as long as they could testify and explain to the court the impact that D'Angelo's crimes had on them. And so they scheduled three days of hearings for the survivors and their families to testify. And they then sentenced him on August 21st, as expected. So after those days of testimony, there were some final summaries by the attorneys in the case. And D'Angelo's attorneys read some letters from his family. And then D'Angelo himself got up and responded to the statements that he had heard 
from the victims and, the, and their relatives. And he had this to say. Mr. D'Angelo would like to make a brief statement. I've listened all your statements. Each one of them. And I'm truly sorry to everyone I've heard. Thank you, Your Honor. One of the things you may notice is how different D'Angelo sounds compared to the way he has sounded recently since his arrest. People who knew him, I mean, his neighbors before his arrest, reported that despite his age, he was really vigorous. Even though he was in his 70s, he was like a 50-year-old. And he was very physically active and very not frail at all. And then once he got taken into custody, he suddenly started speaking with this much much more frail voice and so forth. And and you even heard that in our update a couple of weeks ago where he's like in it, being asked, do you acknowledge this crime? I'll say, I acknowledge. And he also started appearing in a wheelchair. Well, many people thought that this was just a ruse on his part to try to appear frailer than he is and gain sympathy. And that seems confirmed by this. If you watch the video that we'll also have a link to, he stands up straight as a ramrod out of that wheelchair and delivers this statement in a much more assertive voice. So now that he knows what's going to happen to him, he seems to have stopped trying to feign injury or frailness in an attempt to gain sympathy. The judge then departed from his usual procedure, and instead of just pronouncing sentence on D'Angelo, he had this to say first. I have considered the comments of counsel, the facts in this case, as well as, well as the overall circumstances of this disposition. I've considered the defendant's age, the fact there are inmates currently on death row and have been so for 30 years. I have considered the fact that there is currently a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Furthermore, this disposition does give survivors and their loved ones an opportunity to have their words heard and not to endure the imaginable, imaginable emotions uh, that they would experience by sitting through such a trial. Finally, with this resolution, the California taxpayers have been saved tens of millions of dollars. For the reasons stated, the court approves of this plea. However, the court is not saying that Mr. D'Angelo does not deserve to have the death penalty imposed. It merely means the court feels it would never come to pass. In truth, all the parties should be commended in reaching this resolution, for the result of this trial and a plea of guilty is the same. Mr. D'Angelo will spend the rest of his natural life and ultimately meet his death confined in the, in the, behind the walls of a state penitentiary. I generally don't make comments at sentencing, but I am going to uh, make an exception. Having approved this plea, I will now move on to the imposition of sentence. Mr. D'Angelo, I've listened for the last three days from the people you've terrorized and their friends and their family. Their impact statement will always be with me. I was moved by their courage, their grace, their strength, all qualities you clearly lack. 
I know whatever words I say today will pale in comparison to the words the survivors have spoken. They need to be said. The fundamental principle of law that justice delayed is justice denied is no truer than in this case. But for the dogged persistence and perseverance of law enforcement, their survivors, their families, and citizen detectives, this case may have resolved, remained unsolved. There are many heroes like Carol Daly, Paul Holes, Michelle McNamara, and many heroes that I don't even know that brought this day here. And I have little doubt but for the tenacity and unwavering quest for justice exhibited by Sacramento District Attorney's Office, Emory Schubert, you may have escaped earthly justice altogether. If I listened to the survivors and I've watched you, I could not help but wondering, what are you thinking? Are you capable of comprehending the pain and anguish you have caused? To quote the great American novelist and California native John Steinbeck, to a man born without a conscience, a soul-stricken man must seem ridiculous. To a criminal, honesty is foolish. You must not forget that a monster is merely a variation, and that to a monster, the norm is monstrous. Mr. Steinbeck seems to think that monsters are born and not created. I'm not so sure, but one thing I do know, when a person commits monstrous acts, they need to be locked away where they can never harm another innocent person. It is my sincere hope that with the opportunity to be heard these last few days and the sentence to be imposed, survivors, the survivors will find some resolution, will find some peace, and hopefully find some justice, however imperfect. Mr. D'Angelo, I sentence you to the following. It's nice in there that he name checks people like Paul Holes, who is a detective that worked the case for a long time, and also Michelle McNamara, who as a amateur investigator also helped push the case forward and bring a lot of attention to it. And in fact, she was the one who coined the term Golden State Killer. So but she didn't survive to see him caught. She she died accidentally in her sleep from a combination of medicines that she was on. And so even though she didn't make it to see him captured, she almost did. And her book brought a lot of attention to this case. And including it was what me got me on it first and led to our previous episodes on the Golden State Killer and our I should say our previous episode on the Golden State Killer, although we've had some updates. And it's nice to see her getting acknowledgement here from the judge. The judge then went on to sentence Joseph D'Angelo for his crimes. He gave him 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, as well as an additional life sentence that for technical reasons did have the possibility of parole, as well as eight years for other crimes. But with those 11 consecutive no paroles, he is going to spend the rest of his life in jail and will die in jail for his crimes. Okay. Well, thank you for that update in the headlines. So as we finish out, we want to ask you, the listener, what are your theories about Ingo Swan's remote viewing of alien moon bases? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback.
And don't forget, we're trying to make it to our financial stability goal. We're less than $500 a month away from that. So please become one of our patrons or increase your monthly pledge. And as soon as we get there, we will do that drawing of all the different Verbum Catholic Bible software packages, the 16 packages that we have to give away. All of our patrons at the end of September or whenever we make the goal beyond that will be entered into that drawing. And so please help us get to that point and help us celebrate. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? The next two weeks, we're going to be doing a two-parter that was patron requested, and it's going to be on the question of whether we're living on a young earth is the earth only thousands rather than billions of years old? And in particular, we're going to be looking at the question of radiometric dating and how reliable or unreliable radiometric dating is. That's where you use radioisotopes like carbon-14 or other things to measure the age of stuff. And so that will be part of our upcoming Young Earth discussion, part one of which will be next week. Excellent. Folks, if you have not yet done so, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on the SQPN YouTube channel where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>